If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me this morning in them to the book of 2 Samuel once again. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where we find ourselves. You can follow along with the screen if you'd like. You can keep the Bible in your lap. I'd love for you to have it in your lap or on your phone just so we could refer to it and and look back to it. Uh, God's Word is not just a springboard that I'm going to read and then kind of go off into my own flight of fancy. Uh, this, is a, this word has been given for our benefit, and we're going to return to it. I want to say what is found here, and so uh, I invite you to follow along. Second Samuel chapter 7, we continue this morning in what is our 10th week. Hard to believe that, but it's our 10th week in the life of David. And as we come this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's life and the drama surrounding his life has seemingly slowed down quite a bit. He now sits on the throne, the throne of a united kingdom. There is stability in the land of promise after long last. And now the ark this box that we spoke of last week, which is no ordinary box, but the ark of God's presence is now where it ought to be. It is now in Jerusalem. And so this morning we come uh, to a passage that is not only probably the most significant scene in David's life, but one of the most significant passages in the entire Bible. And I don't just say that so you'll really listen to me, so that your ears perk up. I say that because at the heart of this morning's passage is the concept of covenant. Though the Hebrew word for covenant is not explicitly mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's clear that that's what's going on. God is making a covenant with David. Now what is a covenant. Well, you've heard me say it a hundred times, those of you who have been here, the children's definition of a covenant, the children's catechism definition of a covenant. A covenant is a relationship that God sets up with us and guarantees by His Word. Now we could spend, not just this morning, we could spend weeks unpacking the concept of covenant in the Bible. But let's just stop for a second and just think about that definition. The fact, the extraordinary fact that God, the creator and sustainer of all that is, wants to be in relationship with you, with me. That's what's at the heart of covenant. And that in and of itself is extraordinary. But beyond just that crazy fact, this idea of covenant is a huge unifying theme in all of the Bible. It defines how God deals with His people. God deals with His people on on His terms, not our terms. He's the Creator. We are the creatures. And so the covenant is found throughout the Bible as this wonderful, unifying theme. But here's the thing. The point of 2 Samuel chapter 7 
fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, is not for me to give a systematic lecture on covenant theology. It's not the point of the passage. We could do that. It would be fun to do that. I've done that before in other contexts. 2 Samuel 7 can certainly be used as part of a theological lecture about covenant theology, but that's not what I'm going to do this morning. What 2 Samuel 7 does for us this morning is it sets before us in all of His glory our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And His name is the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. His name is Yahweh. So when I title this sermon, if you happen to look at sermon titles, when I title this sermon, The Promise Keeper, I'm not speaking of David. I'm not speaking of me. I'm not speaking of you. I'm speaking of the God that we have come to worship. And so I want you to see Him this morning. I want you to marvel at him this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Listen as I read. If you're able, as is our custom, I invite you to stand this morning for the reading of God's word. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Listen as I read. Now, when the king, that is David, When David lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom 
shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As we unpack 2 Samuel chapter 7 for the next few moments, there are three, three truths about the Lord, about Yahweh that I'd like you to see and be reminded of and meditate on this morning. This is a vision, a further vision of Yahweh to build on what we even spoke about last week concerning His holiness. We're going to work quickly through the first two to get our way to the third, but the first one is this. I want you to see Yahweh's stooping presence. This passage breaks apart in in three nice sections for those of you hardy Presbyterians who love threes. Uh, Chapters, uh, excuse me, verses 1 through 7, verses 8 through 11, and then verses 12 through 17. And just looking at the first few verses, verses 1 through 7, we see Yahweh's stooping presence. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Dorothy said it, and we believe it because it's part of our experience. We've all had that experience. Most of us likely more than once. Some of us maybe recently of being away for some length of time and then coming home. Particularly if you've been away and you've been camping, you smell a mixture of BO and campfire smoke and you need a shower and you want your bed Because who sleeps well in a tent? And you walk in the door. You take a shower. You lock your door behind you. You put your body on that memory foam with thanksgiving and you say, ah, there's no place like home. Our passage begins this morning with David enjoying the comforts of home. David's chilling on his back porch in his house of cedar with his friend and prophet Nathan. And he's rejoicing. Things are at peace. The ark, the presence of the Lord is where it should be. Except for the fact that that Yahweh is still camping. Yahweh is still dwelling in a tent. And David says, this won't do. The the Lord, Yahweh, needs a house. I will build Yahweh a house. Now precisely what exactly is in David's heart, we, we don't know. Perhaps David's received so much from the Lord. He has. Now finally, David's in a position to do something for Yahweh. To, to give back. Or perhaps... David is not thinking so much about Yahweh. He's thinking more about himself. Maybe he's thinking about his own reputation, about his own kingdom, about solidifying his place in the annals of Israel's history by establishing, by creating, by building a temple, a place of God's presence. 
Or, or perhaps what's in David's heart is a, is a combination of both. A combination of, of piety and a combination, a combination of piety and pride. Whatever the motivation David has to build a house for the Lord, that he might no longer dwell in a tent as he has through the wilderness, through the tabernacle. Whatever the motivation, Nathan thinks it's great. Sounds like a plan. Do it. The Lord's behind you. Nathan says that, that is, until the whole building plan comes across Yahweh's desk. And Yahweh's not impressed. Yahweh vetoes the whole thing. No permit will be issued for this house. Here's what the Lord essentially says in verses 6 and 7. Nathan, you tell David that I'm a God who moves with my people. I could have had someone build me a house at any moment, and soon I will have someone build me a house. But for now, I choose to dwell with my people as I have dwelt with them in the past. Let's just think about that for a moment. Here's how one author eloquently, helpfully describes this. He says, do you see what Yahweh is saying about himself? He is the God who travels with His people in all their topsy-turvy, here and there journeys and wandering. Do His people live in tents? So does He. Are they a pilgrim people on their way to the land of promise? So He is the pilgrim God, sharing the rigors of the journey with them. The stooping presence of Yahweh. Do you, do you see the condescension of your God? His desire to be by the side of His people. It's a reality about God, about Yahweh, that's not just for ancient Israel. Because what we see in shadowy form here, we see in full in Jesus, right? Where no tabernacle tent, no building temple, none of that is needed because Jesus has come. The one whom, as John writes in John 1.14, became flesh and tabernacled among us. The one whom, as Paul proclaimed in Philippians 4, emptied himself by taking the form of, of a servant and being made in the likeness of man. The one whom the writer to the Hebrews says is not ashamed to call us brothers. In Jesus, we see Clearly, the stooping, condescending presence of our God. He is not content to be far off. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He is walking in the valley with us. That's the first thing I want us to see from the passage about Yahweh. And the second is this. 
Not just Yahweh's stooping presence, but Yahweh's lavish grace. Yahweh's lavish grace. David gets the tables turned on him pretty quickly in this passage. After all, it begins with David's grand idea of what he was going to do for Yahweh before God goes off concerning all he has done and all he has yet to do. Action verb after action verb with Yahweh as the first person. The middle of verse 8, I chose you. The beginning of verse 9, I was with you. The middle of verse 9, I protected you. The end of verse 9, I will make your name great. Verses 10 and 11, I will plant you. Verses 11, I will give you rest. This is what Yahweh wants to focus on. This is what Yahweh wants His people to hear. His extravagant, lavish grace. And the reality of it is, grace can be jarring and uncomfortable for us. Even in the ancient Near East world, this world that David lives in, as kings related to their deities, the pattern was this. The king builds a temple, and the God that he built the temple for responds with some promise of victory, some promise of security. Our modern world conditions us in the same exact way, doesn't it? You do for me, and I'll do for you. Listen to this quote from one of my favorite pastors. What we don't do for God is often far more critical than what we in fact do. Especially when we're in full possession of our powers, our education complete, our careers in full swing, people admiring us and prodding us onward, but Yahweh's desires and dealings are different. The gospel is different. By grace, you have been saved. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast, Paul says to the Ephesian church. It's a grace, a power, a love that is far more than we could even ask or think. Yahweh wants David to see. He wants us, His people, to see not just His stooping presence, but His lavish grace. And that brings us to the heart of the passage. What is really the heart of, of Yahweh's speech here? This is the longest recorded speech of the Lord since Sinai. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the third thing I want us to see about Yahweh this morning is Yahweh's unstoppable promise. Yahweh's unstoppable promise promise. There's a bit of a play on words here in 2 Samuel 7. See, David wants to build Yahweh a house, a physical dwelling. And Yahweh says to him, no, David, I'm the builder. I'm the one constructing the house, but it's not a residence. It's a dynasty. You see, building on the covenant that Yahweh made with Abram, and before that with Noah, and before that with 
Adam. Yahweh is unfolding His grace to His people, to a people that He has set apart for Himself. And God speaks these words to David, but they're not just for David. They're by extension for all of God's people. A name like no other, Yahweh says in verse 9. A place where you can put down roots, verse 10. And ultimately, ultimately, four letters, one powerful word, rest. Yahweh has always been after rest for His people. Listen to Deuteronomy 12.10, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and when He gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you may live in safety. This was Yahweh's heart then. This is still Yahweh's heart now because this is Jesus' heart. Matthew 11, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. These are not empty words. This is not wishful thinking. This is an unstoppable, inevitable promise. And it's unstoppable and it's inevitable because of the character of the giver and the character of the promise itself. Notice what he says here in verses 12 through 16. Verse 12, this is a promise, the Lord says, that cannot be annulled by death. That's what he says in verse 12. As as David dies and lays down, his seed will rise up. First Solomon and eventually a seed with a capital S. Verses 14 and 15. This is a promise that not only cannot be annulled by death, but it cannot be destroyed by sin. David nor his posterity can mess this up. Notice what the Lord says. He says, when he commits iniquity. Not if. Not if. When he commits iniquity, when that happens, Yahweh says, my hesed, my covenant faithfulness, translated here in our English versions as steadfast love, but it's really an untranslatable Hebrew word that is all kinds of richness. We've talked about it before. My steadfast love will be there. Yes, I will punish. Yes, I will discipline. But the promise ultimately will not be dependent upon performance kings to come will rise and fall but the line of promise will remain Yahweh says and history indeed plays this out right Israel's trajectory after this is one of failure and wickedness and even exile But in the midst of it all, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. A son of David. 
Do you see why these words spoken long ago are so important for us? How does the New Testament begin? Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. It's a promise that cannot be annulled by death. It cannot be destroyed by sin. And then verse 16, it cannot be exhausted by time. The angel tells the Virgin Mary in Luke 1 that the child in her womb will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign forever in his kingdom will have no end. Not death, not sin, not time. The promise is unstoppable. This is your God. And this is the best news for a broken and weary world. Right? King Jesus, the Son of David, reigns. The kingdom of God is at hand and the King will return to make all things right. It will happen. It is inevitable. It is unstoppable. And so what do we do? What do we do with that news? Well, let's take our cue from David. We stopped at verse 17. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 18 with me. Then King David went in after hearing all of this and sat before the Lord. He sat. Why did he sit? He he sat in order to pray, in order to praise, in order to simply acknowledge who God is and what Yahweh had done and what Yahweh was calling David not to do. And as as that comes to your heart, as that comes to my heart, it sounds like this. Stop trying. Stop despairing. See your God. Believe who He is. Don't do anything. Just marvel at who God is, at what He has done, at what He has promised to do that will be done. Another one from Eugene Peterson, that pastor I quoted earlier. Modern Christians are characteristically much afraid of being caught doing too little for God, let alone nothing. But there are moments far more frequent than we suppose when doing nothing is precisely the gospel thing to do. The gospel says rest. Rest in who I am. Rest in what I've done, done, what I've done for you. Rest in what I still will do. 
as I prayed earlier, this has been, it's been a come Lord Jesus kind of week for many. I don't have the answers why, but I declare to you this morning with the authority of God's word that he is for us. That none of it will be wasted. And that his kingdom is coming. Believe it. See it in in Yahweh's stooping presence, in his lavish grace, and in the character of his unstoppable promise. I want to close this morning with Psalm 89. It's not a psalm written by David, even though we've tied a lot of those psalms written by David into his experiences of life. But it is a psalm celebrating this passage and what has gone on here. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness in the assembly of the Holy Ones. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning for Your promise to Your people. Father, we know, I know, we acknowledge that there are plenty of commands for us to follow in Your Word. Plenty of good works that You have prepared beforehand that we should should walk in them. But Father, before any of that begins, as this passage reminds us and calls us to this morning, You ask us to simply sit and rest. To turn from our striving to turn from our performing and to be raw and real before You. To recognize who You are and what You've done. Oh Father, this ancient covenant made with Your servant David long ago has come to us in the person of Jesus and for that we rejoice. We indeed praise Your faithfulness in this assembly. And I pray that as we go from this place this morning, You know Your own. They know Your voice. I pray, Holy Spirit, that You would speak to them. Speak to them in unique ways following what they've been dealing with, what lies before them. 
that your word would not return to you void, but would accomplish all you intend. Father, this I pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.